0: Hello legends, today I catch up with my friend Mikey Taylor, CEO of LionEyes Advertising Agency and founder of Good Space, the world's first therapeutic gum that relieves stress and anxiety. He shared with me his latest entrepreneurial journey with the launch of Good Space and everything that went into starting this company alongside his wife, Rachel, to help Australia and the world reduce their stress and anxiety in an easy way. We discussed the science behind stress and anxiety and ways to overcome them Plus, he shared a whole bunch of information in advertising, especially about the difference between demand creation and demand activation, and how we need both and balance both to create fantastic marketing that works for our business. Mikey is a true expert in advertising, and his latest entrepreneurial journey had a lot to do with Cub, so it's good to talk about. Enjoy the show. It's good to catch up. Like This episode is... I guess was one of the very few last minute episodes we ever have, but when you emailed me, I was like, Oh my god, I haven't seen Mike in ages. And we had a dropout of the podcast. I was like, Laura, you could get Mikey on. He lives. Yeah. And here yeah. I am.
1: Yeah, how have yeah. you been? What's happening? I've been good, man. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. I've been doing my best to um what can I say? Like just keep running a successful advertising agency and then um with a, a little passion project on the side, I'm running with my wife, which seems to be going absolutely gangbusters. It started off as a sort of small little kind of brain fart, as your ideas often do, and then it's kind of turned into this snowballing, quite sort of significant business. And tell me about it, because yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. way I see
0: it is like I told you, which I think is brilliant. It's it's like nicotine gum, but for stress and anxiety, pretty much with no nicotine, with no nicotine, no nicotine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm Laura saying, Daniel described it. I'm holding a purple box that says good space. But I must
1: say the branding
0: is exceptional.
1: Yeah. Well, if i screwed up the branding, you'd be a bit upset with me. As a, oh, I'd be disappointed. Time. You'd be very yeah. disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, so the, it was, it's a weird sort of journey that's come to this because I've had like – um, Fast-moving consumer goods products in the past, right? Um, and I've owned other ones, and I I started off my career at PepsiCo, and then Nudie in Australia, and did all that sort of stuff, and then I've done other ones. This um, kind of this this the idea for this actually came out of a, a sort of a weird journey. So um, I have never ever felt any particular anxiety or stress in my life. Like I've I've been on stage, I've done all sorts of kind of uh, performances. I've often had to speak in front of large audiences and that sort of stuff. I've never felt any stress and anxiety. And then suddenly I think it was going over the hump of, uh, 40. So I am now 14 years into my thirties. Um, I went over the hump and actually it was one of your network here. I'm not going to name names, but got me to go and speak at a conference a and member. It, a member here. Yeah. Got me to go and speak at a conference. And it was so bizarre because for the first time ever, I had this just awful, like deep, f- like my heart racing, f- 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 narrowed focus. I couldn't really speak properly. I had just this horrific kind of anxiety before going on stage. And then even when I was on stage, I was like, I had to keep grabbing for water and pausing. It's like, this is not my brand. I'm not cool with this. So I started to research, well, what is this all about? This anxiety stuff. My mother's actually a clinical psychologist and she sent me a load of articles. um, That helps. That helps, right? And I thought it was just so interesting. I found out so much along the journey about the science of what's going on physiologically whilst you are experiencing sort of stress or anxiety and the differences between stress and anxiety. I found out about um, preventative stuff and then also what there's clinical proof around what you can actually do in moments of stress and anxiety. Look, that actually has got clinical proof because there's, everyone's got an idea of, oh, you should do this and this and this, but there's actually some significant clinical studies into things that genuinely work. So I went on this huge journey about finding out effectively, wow, what are the various different things that you can do to sort of um, manage as best as you can at moments of stress? Um, and one of those, which was really interesting, there is eight clinical studies around basically just chewing gum and all of those clinical studies point towards a significant reduction in stress and anxiety versus a control group when put into stressful and anxious conditions, Um, a significant reduction in anxiety by chewing. And I can explain the science of why that works and it's really, really interesting. So my brain then went to why is no one doing like a Nicorette for stress and anxiety? Why has no one put ingredients because there's also a load of... Natural and herbal ingredients that are also clinically indicated for stress and anxiety. Like why has no one put them in a chewing gum? Because if chewing gum reduces anxiety and stress, and these these other ingredients that reduce anxiety and stress, like why has no one put those two together? So that's when we went on this journey, and um, with a couple of mates, we created Good Space. Um, and strangely enough, I was talking about Good Space at a core session, which is. For anyone that's not part of CUB,
0: CORE is like our main networking system where you're sitting with around 10 other members,
1: discussing whatever you were that day. But Yeah, yeah. well, I was chatting away at a CORE session and it was one of those sessions where I was actually talking about my advertising agency and what I do and who I like after and all that sort of stuff. And I off the cuff I said, oh, and I've got this idea I'm developing. Um, And one gentleman, I won't name him because everyone will probably start hitting him up for investment, but one gentleman said, oh, well, actually I'm an angel investor and I'm really interested in that – idea. So we started talking and then he invested in the startup of this project. Um, cause it's been about two years in the making, like the TGA, it's a, it's a listed medicine and you don't get a TGA license just by turning up. You actually have to go through quite a lot of, uh, a, an obscene amount of bureaucra- bureaucracy to get there. Um, but we got the angel investment, um, involved and then even little things like recently we, I reached out to three, through, through your, um, through the cub, uh, the app and uh, have been connected with a load of AusTrade contacts, which has opened us up with our product into the Middle East market, which has been oh, really wow. cool as well. Yeah, so loads of cool stuff has happened from Cub. Yeah, so, well, a, it's actually a little yeah. bit of a Cub baby. This whole good yeah, space. Yeah, that's thing. well, that's why we about need to get behind like, it. Everyone, yeah, go get it. <laughs> go, yes, give, give it some love, mate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome to you. Yeah. yeah, and 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 it's. So you said it's a listed medicine.
1: Why does it need to be a listed medicine? If because of the ingredients that are in it, um, have got. Clinical indications to, so you don't need a prescription. It's an over-the-counter medicine, no different to like a Panadol, mm-hmm. but because of the uh, medicinal elements that are in it, um, that's and also why medicinal needs, claims, medicinal claims as well. And so, yeah. what's in the thing? Oh, well, let me let me let me roll you through a couple of things, mm-hmm. right? So, what what I think you'll find really interesting, and I think what might be most valuable. <laughs> is to talk about what's happening to you physiologically when you are stressed, and then it will kind of indicate as to why this product works, right? So what I found out, I mean, are, are you across the difference between stress and anxiety? Absolutely not. There you go. But yeah. I had the same
0: experience as you. I never get stressed yeah. or anxious. But I had the same experience as you at the box. Sorry if everyone can hear me opening all the boxes. I'm actually getting gum out. But I had the same experience as you at the BOA launch. I never get nervous. I never get nervous speaking, um, or, or at least I, I used to, and then I didn't because I spoke so much. And I had the same little panic, and I was I needed water, and I was
1: freaking out on stage. If I had some of this stuff, yeah, I, I would have been it. sweet. Yeah, it's so bizarre, right? And it turns on like this, and you're like, well, what is going on? This is not my brand. This is not brand Daniel, right? Mm. So um, so what what's going on? So the difference between stress and anxiety, which is really interesting, basically – What's important to note is your stress response physiologically is generic, right? So you've got lots of different types of stressors. Lots of different things can stress you out. He's having a smile. No, I'm yeah. chewing the gum. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really nice. Yeah, see, Laura yeah, was yeah, yeah. laughing at me because
0: she's probably thinking, "How's he going to speak? So I probably <laughs> need to put it somewhere." But, but it's really nice. Yeah, it's it gum. tastes actually like um um, wait, wait, or like
1: organic. It almost tastes like organic gum. Like it yeah. doesn't. It tastes healthy Loss for of, you. For yeah. Reason. Lots of gum has got um. So the the, the the little coating over most gum that you taste is actually mm-hmm. plastic. No way. Yeah, <laughs> it's really wild. Rank. Yeah. So I, this has been the most incredible learning journey, like to find out that most gum is actually mostly plastic is pretty heinous. Um, what's interesting, so there's lots and lots of different stresses, right? You can have mental stress, I've got too much work on. You can have physical stress, you're outside, it's really super cold and you haven't got a jacket. Or anxiety is actually when your body kicks off your physiological response in anticipation of stress, so that's really the it's difference. like pre-stress. Yeah, so it's kind of it is two sides of the same coin because what happens physiologically when your body starts to kick off stresses, There's this, um, without wanting to make it like a science lesson, but there's the um, the sympathetic chain ganglia, right? And it's this basically this sort of roll of neurons um, from basically your spine to around your belly button. And when your um, brain starts going stress, 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 um, that thing kicks off like a chain of dominoes and it kicks out acetylcholine, which at a bunch of different sites around your body basically releases epinephrine, which is adrenaline effectively. So what your body basically does is it goes, do something. And it switches on all your go systems and it switches off all of your rest, relax systems. So, effectively, you've got your sympathetic uh, nervous system and your parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic is the I'm going to run, fight, talk one. The parasympathetic is the rest, digest, chill out um, nervous system. And when you're kicked off by any of these stresses, whether it's anxiety, anticipation of stress, or physical stress or mental stress, your physiological response is exactly the same. So, if you know what's going on physiologically you can kind of know how to control that within that moment. So it is interesting that that's what happens. So basically, the reason why your throat would have gone dry is because obviously your saliva glands are not really needed if you're in sprinting fight, away fight or, or flight or mode, right? So that's why when you get nervous, your mouth gets dry. That's why it's very difficult to get, you know, horny because these regions aren't going to be needed when you're in fight or flight mode, right? So your rest and digest systems, which is why like the two things that I found significant clinical evidence behind, if you are stressed, there are two things where there is a wealth of evidence. Number one is chewing actually turns on that parasympathetic nervous system. So chewing any gum, uh, our gum, any gum or actually eating, which is why a lot of people stress eat. It basically tricks your brain into thinking, Oh, I'm safe and rest and digest is back on. The other thing is breathing techniques. So, um, What you can do, there's a lot of different breathing techniques. People would have heard of box breathing. People would have heard of um, like um, Andrew Huberman is talking about the physiological sigh, a couple of breaths in, that sort of stuff. The one with the greatest level of clinical evidence, there's a a thing called 7-11, where you do seven breaths in through your nose and then out for 11. And that's basically... So um, seven seconds breathing in through your nose and 11 11 seconds out through your mouth. Yeah. And so when you start to feel really stressed, you can start to program yourself neurologically and what that does, it basically mimics a sigh of what you do before you're about to go to sleep because you exhale more than you inhale when you're about to go to sleep. So when you do that type of physiological sighing, that also is clinically proven to reduce stress and anxiety. So like, there's this whole world of things that you can do in kind of management of stress and there's mindfulness and there's breathing techniques and there's non-sleep deep rest and there's all these wonderful things that you can do and cold showers and being fit and healthy. There's all that management stuff. But in the moments like life happens and in the moments when you are stressed, it's good to know that you can like control it, turn your sympathetic, uh, parasympathetic nervous system back on with a nice breathing sort of technique. Um, And anything that works for you is going to work, like just as long as you're exhaling more than you're inhaling or... Chewing. Well, what I like about the chewing is that everyone tells you about the breathing. Like, Mm -hmm. I've
0: heard the breathing thing plenty of times. But every time I'm stressed, I never sit there, I'm like, I can't breathe. You know, like, if you do, you're like, you know, you're not doing it correct. But, like, if someone said just chew some gum... Yeah. I'd be chewing gum well before that. Like you can sit there and you, you, you yeah.
1: can Yeah You, you, you can just you can chew away. your gum yeah, and,
0: yeah, yeah. and and I, I reckon that Yeah so this is gonna be a SMR podcast before you know. It. <laughs> <laughs> yum, yum, yum.
1: Yeah. Um, no it does and I think it's because clinical studies are really boring. So it took every ounce of my tenacity to read. Eight clinical studies about why chewing works. Like it's really boring, and so it's not the thing that people are going to find out about because it's not hugely exciting. But it does. It it is there is significant clinical proof. And then what we did with the gum is um, we've got a collection, and, and we're the world's first therapeutic chewing gum. So the first. So so it's a, it's effectively a drug delivery system. It's a new form of getting a type of medicine into your body, um, and. There's lots of different ways to get medicine into your body. You can take a pill, or you can what, what other and ways? So this comes through your gums, essentially. Yeah. So basically, it's called buccal absorption. So when you chew, there's all these water-soluble ingredients um, released, um, things like ashwagandha and passionflower and L-theanine that again have all got clinical indications towards reduction of stress. And because we've managed to get water-soluble ingredients into a gum, which is an enormously complex process to work out how to put water-soluble stuff inside a gum. Why is case. that? What does that mean? Well, it's basically you have to press gum really, really hard with these water-soluble ingredients so it's not just sort of little watery stuff in the packets every now and again. So you have to press it really, really hard. So when you chew it, it starts... In The, the experience is really interesting. The first sort of... Um, Three odd minutes, the gum softens a little bit. Yeah, because it got a lot less substantial. Yeah, after I've obviously
0: spat it out now. But, yeah, but it, it started big, and it's like you feel you can feel the liquid come out of it without there being actual liquid. Yes. And then the gum itself gets le- uh, smaller.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's basically, that's the active ingredients releasing. And then they're all absorbed through your buccal cavities, So your cheeks and gums and underneath your tongue, which is a really quick way other than intravenous. That's the quickest way of getting medicine into your body, which is why like if, if you're really, in, if, if, Hey, if it doesn't work out a carbon and you get really into heroin through the gums, Rub it in your gum, s- yeah, you're going to be, you're, you're straight on mate. Yeah. Have, have you watched that Netflix documentary? Uh,
0: I watched it on the weekend. It's called Painkiller. Watch it. No, okay. It's about um, the Sackler family who own, uh, per- I think it's called A Purdue. Purdue Farmer. And it's yeah. about how they, why they created uh, Oxyco- uh, Oxycontin, how they got it through, how they sold it, yeah. how they, they convinced the doctors to sell it, like, and, and the effect it had on America and, and just – was massive popular, oh my God, you should, country, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should watch this documentary. <laughs> so completely off topic of to what McIverian. we're saying, but yeah, 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 it was one of the best. Well, yeah. I mean, it's also a business documentary. It's a criminal documentary. It's a corruption documentary. It's a yeah. documentary that I found to be really important on like human needs yeah, and like people yeah. were just doing things. And what I took from it was like someone will believe anything you tell them, if it's good and true, if it means something positive for them. So you know, if you tell a doctor this this medicine's really safe, plus you're going to sell so much of it, like you're going to make heaps of money, the doctor would be like, "Oh yeah, it's 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 fully safe. Only one percent of patients get addicted. Yep, yeah. that's that's fine. We, I, I don't need any studies to look. I believe you. I'll just I'll start selling." So, and that's that like, it, and that happens at every layer. It happens at the government layer, and it goes to the doctors, and then it goes to the sales, rep, sorry, sales reps, and the doctors, and. And then, and then even the patients at
1: first are like, "Oh yes, this is life changing!" Like, and, and oh my god, you got to watch this documentary. You know what's really fascinating about that whole scenario is that so we have had to deal with the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and that base the TGA basically cover off. That's Australia's kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. but the, it's 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 actually a very high standard, right? So you've got the TGA basically covers off. Australia has a very high standard of kind of medical code of conduct. Um, and then most of the Middle East and Asia Pacific kind of fall underneath the TJ and everyone's got that. And then you've got CE in Europe and you've got the FDA in the States. And what makes me so fascinated about that is, I mean, we've been through the the process here and it's no picnic, right? You need uh, you need regulatory consultants and lawyers and you need all sorts. You think how, on, and, and equally selling the product in, so we're we're in a, a lot of pharmacies and uh, convenience stores and uh, soon-to-be grocery stores sell online and all that sort of stuff. Um, particularly the pharmacy channel, which would be closest to the OxyContin sort of channel with doctors, are so interrogative about the efficacy, the clinical studies behind it. Like th- in this country, there is a lot of due process to get a medicine out, which actually gives you a lot of confidence as a, as a consumer to go, Oh, actually there's, you know, they won't just put any old thing on the shelves here. Yeah, no, we're definitely less corrupt
0: and, and less capitalistic. <laughs> but
1: how do they get that through the FDA?
0: It's just extraordinary. Oh, they yeah. befriended, they said they said they, they, it shows you. Like yeah. there's one guy that they had to get past. They befriend him. So he kept denying it, kept denying it. He said, No, the studies don't show this. They end up befriending him over like a space of two, three years. They're pumping him up. They're all getting behind him. Yeah. They they're changing the wording on their documents. They're changing the way they do things. And eventually he just kind of gives in. It's like, yeah. Like, it proves it. Like, it was wild. And, and, and there was some corruption happening as well. But, but it, was, it was really yeah. – it, it's, it's really a good documentary.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinary.
0: But, and so you went through that whole process. How long did that take?
1: From, original, from the original idea through to um, having it as a, a listed medicine and manufacturing and and it to go it. and selling it, it was about two years. That's actually <laughs> pretty fast because if you think about it, even just starting a normal business – like it
0: took us almost two years to launch Boa. Like two years is a pretty good uh, time frame. And, and so what's the plan? Tell me about the branding. You are a branding expert. You're actually one of the best kind of advertising branding people I know. So what's, what was your thinking? How did you – walk us through how you designed the brand?
1: Look, I mean I'm very, very fortunate that um, at Lion Eyes I've got an award-winning creative director who um, is good to bounce off. So I can't take credit for good space. That's that's his as a naming um, and actually the design, but certainly going, hey, this is where we want to go and why. You know, what, what's really interesting is we're trying to kind of breach the gap between fast-moving consumer goods and medicine. So when you put something onto a, a pharmacist shelf, you can't look too cool and groovy. Um, otherwise, you compromise credibility. But at the same time, because it's a gum and because it's over the counter, we've got visions of... Well, we're already like, for example, every WH Smiths across the country has already got the product there at the counter um, because obviously flying, there's a lot of stress and anxiety around flight and travel. So WH Smiths have been one of the early adopters and put it in there, good on them. Um, And um, so, you know, we kind of needed to be fast-moving consumer goods enough to stand out in that environment but also… Medical enough to look… Believable is not the word, reputable in a pharmacy. In a pharmacy, yeah. And so really the strategy has been uh, if we can win in pharmacy and do well in pharmacy and we've got some really great distributors on board, pharmacy kind of paves the way for convenience and grocery. Um, We sell the product online but what's really interesting, um, and you know this, you've got online businesses, so, so there's a tipping point with online where you need to invest enough to get the brand well-known enough that you start getting the ROAS and all that sort of stuff. So we're kind of focusing on retail first. We've got um, platform partners for, um, for for online sales. So uh, we work with... Um, Woolworths online, take the product, stock in the product, chem Warehouse online. um, So they had them online but not in-store yet? Yeah, so not in-store in Woolworths yet. um, They typically do that. Reviews are coming within the next couple of months, so we'll see how we go at those.
0: The the Woolworths and whatnot, they do that because they want to see – I, I, how much are we selling? They want to see that your product's going to move if it hits their shelves. So if your product sells a lot online, they're going to be like, okay, let's put it in the shelves. That's, I assume, the process yeah. they go through.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are a um, shamelessly for-profit organization, and they want to know every single square inch of the shelf is delivering as much profit as possible. So if this product's going to do two units per store per week, but this one's going to do three, then they're always going to put the one that's going to do three and have the most co-op marketing spend and all that sort of stuff behind it. So, And yeah. so your wife's the CEO? Yeah, yeah, she's she's the boss um, in all ways at home at the moment. So, yeah, she's running the show day to day. Yeah. So I, I come like? home, I get my list of instructions. It's interesting. Because you've got two, because yeah, uh, yeah, from yeah. what I
0: understood, she, she wasn't um, working before, was she? No. No, so now you've got two uh, owners of companies
1: or heads of companies in, in one family. What's that like? It's interesting actually because um, like Rachel had a, a big career break. Um, while the kids were growing up, and now she's she's back in and she's really focused. It's fun. We have to try and kind of create some um, healthy boundaries around times that we should talk about work and, like, when you can switch off. So if I've been at the agency from 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night, you know, sometimes I just have to go, hey, let's not talk about the the gum business today. Um, but it's been really cool, actually. It's quite fun to have a little project together, like a little side project. She's uh, She brings a very different... Um, she brings a very different focus to the business to myself. She's very happy to be back at house and very good with attention to detail. And like, there was absolutely no way that we would have got through all of the regulatory stuff if it wasn't for Rachie, because I would ha- not have the patience.
0: <clears throat> yeah. It, it, I guess it's kind of like business partners working with a family member. I always find, well, I, I'm always told from guests that it's all about time management and switching off. It's kind of like, no, we can't speak about that right before we go to bed. You know, that that can't be happening. But um it, in terms of selecting partner, like a partner, or a business partner, it it's about finding complementary um uh complementary um um skill sets and, and, and personalities. Whether it could even be business partner or like leadership team. Yeah. yeah. Like some of Cubs' biggest strides, uh, strides, um happened when someone on the leadership team, a new leadership team member joined. And the, their skill set was just so different to mine that all of a sudden, all these ideas, all these things I wanted to do became possible because that person yeah. loved doing, you know, making that possible. Yeah. Um, and so, wife, not wife, having the having complementary skill sets is is key.
1: Yeah. No, it makes it makes a massive difference to have people who are really good at the stuff that you're not, and uh, you know, to know that. Uh, and actually, as I get, as I as I get more corporate highlights, um, which we discussed earlier, um, you get more comfortable with knowing that you're really not that good at stuff. There's certain mm-hmm. things that I'm, I'm not good at, and I'm quite comfortable to know that somebody else is going to do that much much better. Um, I think when I was younger and full of hubris, I uh, was imagining that yeah, I'm brilliant with attention to detail. Don't worry about me; I'll get this right. I'm I'm good if I focus on it. So I was like, actually, no. Even if you focus on it, you're still rubbish. Mm-hmm. Like, there's certain things, and so you, you kind just of get, learn yourself. Yeah, he's you, you you a bit more comfortable. Yourself. Yeah, yeah. And what's really interesting, so goes to this the anxiety point. Sorry to keep bring it back to that, but when I was studying anxiety. This is really interesting. So um, the incidence of anxiety has doubled in the last uh, uh, 10 years, right? 4.3 million Aussies will experience anxiety this year. And what I found the most fascinating graph of all is um, there was a really interesting um, piece of research that we got which shows what percentage of people by age experience anxiety. And so from zero through till sort of 10, 11 very, very low percentages. And then in the teen years, anxiety spikes. And then around 21 years of age, the percentage of um, people that experience anxiety drops till about kind of mid-30s. And then it spikes again. So, you know, that kind of like late 20s, early 30s. I know it all. I've got it all under control. And then it spikes again in your You early realize it. No, I don't. You, well, that's when you go, oh, actually, I'm kind of halfway through this little journey. And I sh- thought that we'd have, you know, I thought I'd be sipping um, Nespresso's with George Clooney and in Lake, Lake, Coma. Lake Coma by now. But no, it's not happened like that. Um, and then it spikes again until about 45. And then after 50 anxiety and stress markers drop off a cliff. It's so interesting. And I think that's part of the learning journey of learning more about yourself, being more comfortable with where you are in the world and that sort of stuff.
0: It's and really just have had more time to accomplish enough to keep yourself to make yourself comfortable. Yeah.
1: yeah you know, yeah. if you've
0: stayed committed uh, at, at, you know, work and accomplishing certain goals in life, by the time you're 50 – you're, you you t- you typically should be in a a lot more stable and uh, comfortable position than you were when you were 35 you yeah. know or, yeah, or 30 yeah yeah
1: and it's different stresses right so i think you're obviously going to embark upon the whole married and and children, the responsibility of feeling like, oh, I just want to give them the best that you can possibly be. And then the the weird dissonance between, I want to give everything I can at work. But then I like this weird feeling of guilt that you have through the youngest ages of your children as a guy that owns a business. Like it's really interesting. You've got this kind of, I want to give everything to my business. I want to give everything to my children, but you can't give everything to everything all the time. So you always got this kind of slight feeling of compromise when you're with the kids. I'm like, oh, should you be doing this? And then when you're a bit, shouldn't I be doing this? So it's a weird feeling that you get for this sort of 10-year period of your life where like, I'm constantly compromised and not, you know, quite. Yeah. yeah. See, I haven't got kids
0: yet, so I haven't felt that. But I can imagine. How did you handle that?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. You have to ask Rachel. Okay. I think, I mean, my kids seem reasonably well adjusted. No, but
0: what was your thinking (laughs) process towards how I balance my, my time with my
1: children and time with my work? Interestingly, I think I had a number that financially, if we've got this much every single month coming in from the business, then I feel really, really comfortable that everyone's taken care of. And as soon as I've got that number, then my brain went, I'm cool. I've got like, so as soon as we, the business was big enough to, contribute that, then I started to feel like I could focus more on that's here. That's such a male I know, way to so think about it. Bizarrely yeah. objective. But I think it's boring, right? It's like, well, if I do that, then everyone's got what they but need. But I could see
0: yeah. how you got there. Yeah. Like that that is an interesting way to look at it. I'm a ruthless it. list ticker. It's like, oh that's my that's my thing to tick for the day. Yeah. Well it's like you hear a lot of guys, even young guys say like, oh I can't get married until I've I'm earning this much. You know, like it's it I mean I'm sure it's a huge cause to anxiety. Or well, I know for a fact it's a huge cause to anxiety. Uh, for a lot of young people, uh, yeah. men and women. But, but I, I mean, I can't even believe on, you said only 4.3 million people are going to experience yeah. anxiety
1: in Australia. Yeah, it's a lot of people. That, I mean, I thought would have thought more. Is, yeah, yeah. I would have thought more. But that's how many identify as um, experience anxiety. Um, so how many actually really do might be enormously more. Another thing which is really, really interesting, and so this is where the – Like the actual, the stat that kind of compelled me to go, yeah, I'm going to put time and money into this was that for every hundred Australians that visit the doctor with a stress or anxiety condition, um, 27% leave with a prescription for, and it's usually like a Benzo, so a a Xanax or a Valium or something. So 27% leave with a prescription, 73% leave without anything. They leave with, you should just calm down. And this, this is my experience with the, the GP. Just, uh, it, was, it was like, oh, well, you know, you're probably working too hard and you've got, um, you know, pressures of the business and this and that. Just, just do less and you'll be fine. I was like, that was a really, really awful piece of advice because, like, life happens. So that 73% was like, you know what? There's this world of tools that you should have to manage stress and anxiety. Um, if we could be one in that toolkit, that's a really good thing because, like, Yes, you should have a really good mindfulness practice. Yes, you should try and practice good circadian rhythms. Yes, if you can, exercise regularly and vigorously and get loads of zone 2 cardio and loads of zone 4 cardio. Like if you can do all these things, you're going to be the best version of yourself. You can be, but sometimes life happens and sometimes you have a massive presentation or sometimes you have to speak in front of a group full of people and it's going to kick off that um sympathetic nervous system. So that's kind of why we pushed into that product.
0: I I also think people knowing, like being aware that you are going to experience anxiety and stress and that it's normal, Mm. you know, I think that's a huge, I I honestly think anxiety and stress are some of the biggest sicknesses that we have as a society right now. And and I see it always in young people Mm. or like young uh, staff members, young people I know, friends of my brothers and things like that so many people are on medication which i also disagree with because i had anxiety and stress when i was when i was young too really bad but I, you know i just got through it i didn't start taking medication i think the medication's are bad not the gum but when they start giving you like prescribing you all these drugs and things i'm you know i'm not a doctor so i shouldn't be uh, having an opinion but my opinion was i had really bad stress and anxiety when when i was uh, of a certain age mm. i think it was like maybe like 21 to 24. And I know a lot of people like Anthony, my co-founder at Cub, he was the same. He had like severe anxiety and stress at that age too. Mm. But, but I mean, we never got prescribed any drugs. We just kind of got through it. I think what's happening to a lot of young people now too is they've got social media and everyone looks so happy, beautiful, and rich. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, well, holy shit, I'm not that happy, beautiful, and rich. So I should have a lot to worry about because I'm not going to have that life. And everyone else I look at on a daily basis has this incredible life. So all of a sudden, all these young guys are thinking, well, if I'm not rich, I'm literally nothing because, you know, you don't really have, well, you have a lot less beautiful male influences. Like, mm. you know, when you, when the big followings aren't, really handsome men, you know, they're, they're normally the really successful ones. They're, yeah, they're the ones yeah. who promote that. And, they get, yeah, and yeah. then there's all these beautiful women who have these huge followings and and other young people looking at them like, oh, wait a second, do I, something I need to get plastic surgery? Is there something wrong with me? And like, you can see how young people mm. fall into the trap of, of, um, of anxiety and then I, I've, I mean, I've met a lot of influences in my life and i met a lot of um, certain people and I, they're all depressed. They're the saddest ones, I reckon, mm. because they're they're living a fake life on their social media. They they you know in their head and the way people treat them, they they're really rich and amazing and they feel stunning. And oh my God, look at the hotels I'm at and I get flown or you know I do it. And then but in real life they they, they they're begging for scrums. Oh, I need to find someone so I can go to this hotel or I need to you know. This bag, I didn't actually, you know, it's not mine. I rented it or, mm. you know, and, and it's a, there's a difference in reality from perception and and that causes them, I reckon, a worse anxiety than the people that watch them yeah. thinking, why don't I have that? Because they have that. To have that, I need to be rich and
1: beautiful. Yeah, cognitive dissonance can be a massive trigger to yeah. anxiety.
0: But if I can give young people with anxiety any sort of, like if I was going to leave a message just after that rant, <laughs> is that trust me. Yeah. Everything you see is fake those people's lives are probably fucked up anyway. And your life is good. If you've got good relationships around you, you've got a good family, you've got real friends, you've got real ambitions and you're focused on them and you're working towards them. No one's perfect. Everyone's got these insecurities and social media makes everyone, it makes it look like everyone's super successful and super rich and super beautiful and have beautiful friends and the best families and all these things. It's all completely fake. Trust me. What you've got is probably better than the people you're looking at. Yeah. Guaranteed. It's, it's interesting. So I hope a lot read, of young people listen to the like, show because that was that was a good
1: rant. Yeah, they should all get on yeah. board with that. But I think um, so, so the whole consult your health professional thing, right? So they're, they're, I think sometimes education helps everything. So education, understanding what's going on uh, physiologically when you are anxious or stressed helped me understand how you can manage it. Equally, I think it's if you are experiencing anxiety, it's worth understanding that there's a, there's a spectrum of anxiety, right? On one end of the spectrum, you've got clinical anxiety. Which is when the condition is lasting and permanent without the trigger being there, or then you've got state and trait anxiety. So the vast majority of anxiety is state and trait anxiety. State being, um, you know, I'm ner- I, I hate to travel or speak publicly or big presentations or those sorts of things. Like that is state or trait anxiety. Clinical is when it's lasting and and it just the feeling just does not go away. And that's when you should see your health professional. If you are experiencing it because of certain triggers, um, even if you don't necessarily understand the triggers, but it's kind of, it's it's not permanent, then that's when it's more likely to be state or trait anxiety. And you could try, there's a whole spectrum of things that you can try outside of running to your health professional for a big old box of barbiturates. I went to,
0: so, and I had pretty bad, so me and Anthony, both of us, and I know a lot of young men go through at that stage, I was so bad that I went to a therapist and said to the therapist, I think I broke my brain. Like, I think I'm crazy. I, I don't think – I'm not seeing the world. Cause like, I, I like I had thought my brain was fucked. I, I was convinced that I was going to be screwed the rest of my life. Like, I was uh, – whatever was wrong with us. Like, and you know what the therapist said to me? And it actually, straight away, it almost got rid of my anxiety. He was like, I thought I'd gone crazy. He said to me, trust me. I've treated a lot of people. Only uh, – if you think you're crazy, you're not. Because <laughs> anyone that's crazy doesn't think they are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And straight yeah. away, as soon as he said yeah, that, yeah. I was like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." And then, and then it just slowly went away. Like it was, it was that that was, and it was bad enough that I went to a therapist. For people who know me, for me to go to a therapist in the first place, like means I think I'm dying. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not like I wouldn't be doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah. But
0: but I did, and that's what he said to me, and that's how that. It's, it really. That, had, I think that perspective you've had the third is kind of
1: third-party like, validation. You got congratulations. You yeah, are not crazy today. Yeah, just a bit of
0: third-party yeah. validation. Yeah. It was. It was I mean, more like yeah. professional insight. It yeah. was like, hey, I trust me. I know a lot of crazy people, <laughs> and I don't know any of them that, that don't think they're crazy. Yeah, you know, they sorry. that they think they're not crazy. he yeah,
1: sounds yeah, like a great therapist. I love him.
0: Yeah, I, well, he's <laughs> amazing <laughs> at making money because I never went
1: back after that. It's <laughs> like I'm. Yeah. I'm fixed. <laughs> he's brilliant, but he's broke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that guy. I should
0: reach back. I can't remember his name. I wish I could
1: give him a shout out. <laughs> Anyway, so you're in that field now. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Yes. I mean, effectively, we, um, my wife and I, have always got something every single day to talk about with Good Space, which is cool. Hey, the kids are getting grown up now, so we've got something new to talk about. And how old yeah. are your kids? Oh, now? They're 13 and 12. So, oh, they're still yeah. they're still very young.
0: Yeah, yeah. And to, uh, to, with the advertising, yeah. how are you balancing the two? Because obviously, you have got Lionize.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, is most of your time still Lionize?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So that really absolutely. is still the yeah, main. Yeah, that's still the main. That's still the main gig. Um, I'm kind of front man of the band for this because um, Rachel likes being a backup dancer, but mm-hmm. she's really running the show. Um, day that's to called day. a puppet master. Yeah, no, I think, the back, uh, we're really yeah. running the show. Oh yeah, yeah. She's the puppet master, right? And I just kind of <laughs> waddle
0: into what everything I'm told. <laughs> what's what's this? What's the environment like at the moment with ad- uh, advertising?
1: It's an interesting market. Um, I can't quite make up my mind whether it's sublime or ridiculous. So you'll have a month um, where confidence seems to come back into the advertising world, and you're like, oh, yeah, things are whirling again. And then you'll have another piece of kind of quite sort of dramatic, drastic news or... You know, um and it'll withdraw uh, and then yeah withdraw, so, withdraw, so track. It, it's you know it's up and down up and down up and down it's an int- it's a very very interesting time. The other thing which is very interesting is is during times of kind of recessionary pressures, most um, most advertisers, most of our clients tend to go a little bit further down funnel um into I would call them less high attention medias. You mean, by downfall, you mean more lead generation? Lead generation. uh, As opposed to brand recognition. Deeper deeper Google. Yeah, I mean, you should balance your brand spend with your kind of activation, buy ship from me now, spend. Uh, But what you tend to find is that, it's quite short termism, but clients will tend to go, "Wow, okay, let's just do more of this kind of buy, 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 more sales, more promotional activation." You'll find like co-op spend through Coles and Woolworths goes up like this, and brand spend on the billboards and TV networks outside goes down like this. You know, um, so I think just the balance changes. That's not necessarily right. Um, most. It's not. It's what happens. It's what the marketing it's, teams at the big firms. It's the end na- up doing. it's the natural cycle. You get like, uh, and most marketers know and have all read the the science that if you if you go up funnel and you do more brand comms through recessions, you actually come out smiling the other side and are more profitable and you can buy market share cheaper because there's less media in the market and all that sort of stuff. But actually, um, while most people know that, as soon as you get the reality of commercial pressures, going okay, we really need sales now, and Businesses need to keep the lights on, so you tend to go down funnel. Um. That's
0: that's that's the thing. Like, you you might so you might be told and know that you know it would be better to do brand marketing. But at the end of the day, if business hasn't got money coming through the door, it doesn't give a fuck about any research you've ever done or anything you're telling me or how much of an expert you are. If I don't have money coming in, trust me, I'm doing anything I can to get the money, and I'm doing what I think is best to get the money. Like, because yeah. if I don't have the money people got to lose their jobs and I got to lose everything I've worked for. And like, I can't do any of that. Like, you know, that's the most power. Like, cash is king.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I deal with some very sophisticated CEOs and marketers. I was dealing one, with one who is uh the CEO of a, a, a very large lingerie company and you know, smart enough to say, look, I know that we should be leaning into brand, but we're keeping the lights on. Retail's really tough. Um, Online is a minefield of people, just promotions, and there's competitors coming from everywhere trying to cut your lunch, and so we want to keep everyone employed, and that means going down funnel. And yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's it's the the reality at the end of the day. The first time I ever really was conscious
0: about holding cash, like for, for talk about Cub, um, was when COVID hit. Before COVID, I never even thought about. You know, oh, we should have X amount in the bank account at any time, and like I was young, and we hadn't yet. I mean, t- business times were good, um, pre-COVID. From I think when I started, it was two thousand and fifteen. Like there was no um uh, fluctuations in economy. God, oh, I wish I was me now, and that was back then. I would yeah. fucking killed it, yeah. but, but I was and I was still a moron and I, you know, I was trying to find my way, but thank God I was finding my way in an easy time. Yeah. Finding my way in a hard time would have been hard. But anyway, that was the first time I ever realized survival is king yeah. and to survive, I need cash. And from that point, from maybe when Cub started growing again, uh, maybe like three, three months into COVID, because that's really when Cub kicked off, um, in a big way, I, I just started holding and holding and holding cash. And, um I built a war chest so now I feel at least comfortable and I'm telling this story because you know that was a ma- it was a big lesson in my in my business life that um, maybe other people will do too and it doesn't matter you know everyone can figure out your own cash how much you need to hold to make yourself feel comfortable but I decided to hold a lot because mm-hmm. uh, I also um read a lot of studies on Survival and time, like time, a business is alive, is the most important factor. And so I thought, well, the the longer I can survive in business, the the better I, the better off I'll be.
1: You went for the Stephen and Bradbury. So I strategy. just went,
0: yeah, I just went, well, I want to make it so I, I can't die. Yeah, like yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold cash, so I, I can't die.
1: You're quite literally gonna live forever.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. But, yeah. but but that was my thinking, and 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 certainly for this upcoming like economic situation, that benefit benefited me. Um, considerably, because I mean, while nothing's happened yet, um, or nothing for Cub anyway, um, um, even if it did, well, I, at least I have that comfort in knowing like, okay, well, I do have this good cushion. And I think every business should be, should be thinking if, if the business, if, you know, if it's possible for the business to, mm. um, it, to save um, which, you know, I hope it is. What's,
1: well, uh, what's really interesting, I think at the moment, and we're talking to a lot of our clients about kind of the weird two-speed economy that we've got at the moment. So Combank released all their um, IQ data. So the credit card spending of 7.3 million Aussies, right? And what is fascinating about that data is it basically shows that we're we're 25% of the Australian population, which is mainly um, sort of boomers or what they're calling NEOs, the new economic orders, are spending about 55% of the consumer spending and they are deciding not to participate in a recession. They're like, if I want it, I'm buying it. What generation are they? So Boomers is the slightly older generation. I'm an ex, one above me, my parents' generation, who've made a lot of money in property. Yeah, that's because they don't have debt. That's why they're doing that. Exactly. So you've got a two-speed economy, and then you've got 75% of the population effectively living like they're under mortgage or rental pressure, cost of living pressures, that sort of stuff. So that's a really interesting, and as a marketer, you go, that's interesting because what do you do as a brand then right so you go okay well that means that if i were a, a brand at the moment um, you start thinking i need a value offering and i need a premiumization offering and if you have a if you have a value offering for the 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 neos and the boomers then you're actually wasting your opportunity to make significant margins you should premiumize for that cohort and then you should also uh, and this is where we've been trying to get our – a lot. we have a lot of fast-moving consumer goods clients, for example. So if your brand relates to a younger demographic, then, yeah, by all means, go down funnel. Go do loads of on-shelf promotions, buy two for this, 40% off, down and dirty, bleh, retail-y type stuff. If your product or service relates to a slightly older or is genuinely – a kind of a more premiumized product. You're wasting your opportunity by going down funnel. You're wasting your opportunity by uh, to 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 make significant um, margin, and you should be premiumizing your your offering for that particular target market. It's just so interesting
0: understanding the you know the different economic situations of the different demographics, and how where where, where does your brand and company where do they sell to? How should I be treating it? Yeah.
1: like. Yeah, it's have it's, a, have an offering that kind of fits each demographic, and and you know there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that um, economic order is going to change over the next five years. There will be a small cohort spending a lot more money because they've all made millions of dollars in property, or or the the, the neos. It's not necessarily an age thing. Neos is just an attitude. It's an attitude of basically fuck it. I, I I know I'm never going to own a big house in Vaucluse. Yeah, see those. So pe- I'm just going to I'm just going to buy stuff that makes
0: me feel good. Those people, in my opinion, are absolutely fucked. I see I see those people like you know the the, the person with a hundred thousand dollar watch, but he rents his apartment. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: know so many of them. Yeah. I actually had this conversation the other day with someone. I was like, yeah. the amount of people I know own watches over worth over a hundred grand or multiple of them, but do not own where they live or or a house or an apartment or if they do they have a small like i know so many of them it's unbelievable you
1: want to hope that watch appreciates at a decent well they've uh, come thing. yeah but yeah. it doesn't matter like it's it, very it, difficult to borrow money against a watch
0: it's yeah. kind of like that's <laughs> it's kind of like a symptom of the sickness i was describing before which is everybody needs to look rich mm-hmm. regardless of whether i am or not i need to look it you know and so instead of that money going towards even a small apartment, even if you don't want to live in it, but you're just buying an apartment to invest in or whatever it may be. Mm. Um, it's going towards a, a what it's going towards something that's going to make me look really successful yeah. as opposed to something that's actually going to make me successful. And, and that's the sick
1: generation. And it's part of the human condition. So we're all, we're all feeling creatures that think not thinking creatures that feel right. So we're all going to lean into things that are going to make us feel good. And if if X and you know, there's lots of um, there's lots of different things that will make you feel good, like recognition. Third party validation, recognition, those all sorts of things give you a kind of a, a dopamine hit. And it's like, oh dopamine, I feel good. I've got recognition. I've got likes. I've got I've got show. Um they are all gonna make you feel good. And as feeling creatures, particularly when That's times are first. tough, we're gonna we are gonna. So head towards that. Yeah. So it's kind of a d- weird sick condition. Yeah. We are a little sick yeah. things, aren't we? Little and and little so sicker, how
0: does it? how does how does an ad agency like yourself, when you're creating
1: brands, mm. and so what are like some of the bigger brands you've worked on? Oh, we, we we we've worked across the whole of the Nestlé portfolio and um, Pet Circle, the so iconic. So when when Lots you're working with brands. Uh, yeah.
0: not mentioning any of those brands specifically, but when you're working with big brands, are you focused almost entirely in terms of the campaigns on the emotional?
1: The emotional side no, of a consumer. Me, you need a really good balance. Uh, there's a wonderful piece of work by um, Peter Field and Les Benay. It's getting, it's getting a bit long in the tooth now. It's, I think it was in 2015 called "The Long and the Short of It," where they look at the balance between brand and um, what you would call sort of demand creation Emotion and logic. Yeah, so you've got you've got really you've got two types of ads. You got um, demand creation ads, and you got demand activation ads. So the demand creation ones are make me feel good, right? Every ad needs to get noticed and then it needs to get remembered, and then it needs to get bought. If you, You've got to do the get noticed and get remembered with emotion. So emotion and advertising, this is quite interesting actually. So the emotion and advertising was first discovered as an opportunity in the 1950s when they were doing experiments on psychopaths. Really? Yeah. So basically they were showing a bunch of the, – the hypothesis was that um, – At the time, they didn't have a clinical definition for what a psychopath was. And the hypothesis was that they couldn't feel emotion, right? By psychopath, do you mean like sociopath? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a clinical definition between the two, but pretty much. And basically, they were showing um, news stories that were highly emotive uh, versus quite logical, boring, rational ones uh, to a control group and then to people that they suspected to have sociopathic, psychopathic tendencies. And then they were looking at the memory um, receptors on, on both and seeing if one was more memorable and they could recount more. And the control group could recount all of the details behind all of the highly emotive stories and very little of the rational ones. And then the sociopath, psychopath kind of suspected group were at the time able to remember basically the same amount for both of them. And it was actually the advertising agencies in New York City that went, hang on, that's interesting. We need to turn our advertising to peak emotions. So 50s and 1960s ads, if you look at it, it's all very just telling you exactly what it does. And it was the whole features and benefits ads. This car goes from 0 to 60. It has Four doors. It was very boring. And then through the 70s, you'll They're see like advertising. Yeah, they, through the 70s through the 80s, you'll see that it's like, oh, creativity took over and there was more opportunity to do more interesting kind of stuff because we discovered emotion is more resonant because uh, that's how it makes people feel. So your brand is about how it make, makes people feel. Now, you need to do that to create demand, but you also very few people feel good about something and do it straight away. So you do need a balance of really good ads that tell people what to do and when. Um, But you can't do both at the same time. So I see it all the time. So brands try to bring them both together. Yeah, I see it all the time where it's called double duty. It's when you're trying to get an ad to create demand and convert demand at the same time. Whereas really you should have one ad for one purpose and make two ads, make an ad that's really cool at creating demand and an ad that's really good at converting it and then choose your media channels that are going to be right around it. Yeah. And you know what? One thing that
0: I always struggle with is that people say like, like marketers typically, not so much advertising. I've heard this more from like digital marketers. They say, you know, you should spend X amount on your brand building on like um, what you're saying, the emotional stuff and Mm -hmm. X amount on this. But how do small companies actually do that? So if I'm a small company and maybe social media marketing is not working for me and I can't afford a billboard or a TV, mm-hmm. how am I getting emotional emotional advertising across?
1: Mm. Interesting. I mean in terms of uh, investment into advertising or marketing, there's basically there's three models that you can look at which have got empirical evidence as to they're actually formulated well. So one is um, a Nielsen model, which is the 50-50-50 rule, which is basically 50% of brands underspend by about 50% and therefore they miss out about 50% of the return on ad spend. And Nielsen did a huge great big study and found that the average Australian company spends about 3.8% of revenue back into marketing and that was about 50% too low. They should be spending around six and a half to actually get the return on ad spend and therefore it's starting to deliver because you're basically farting in the breeze. It's just not enough to actually make any. And what I would say is that for any customers or clients that can't afford to get to six and a half percent of revenue back, well, try something different and don't go leaning into, certainly don't go leaning into social media because it's it's so cluttered, you know, anything over half a second is charged as a view, and I'm not sure about you, but really in advertising, you're just buying attention and think about where you can buy the most attention and you can get a bit more resonant. Um, Another model that you can look at is excess share of voice. So there's a very key correlation between how much money you spend versus your size of the market. Now it's difficult for something like Cub, but in fast moving consumer goods, for example, if you look at water brands, you'll see that the brand that spends about 10% of the ad spend is pretty much always about 10% of the market. The brand that spends about 15 is always about 15. If you want to grow, so you're 10% of the market and you want to grow to... Twelve percent. Spend more. You, you, you need to spend more. <laughs> yeah. You need and you need to over. You need to overinvest. It's called excess share of voice, and there's a calculation for that. And then the third model, which is actually done by an Aussie group, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. They're smart, smart guys down there. They worked out that to grow what's called mental availability to make your marketing resonant enough. And I think this is really important for quite a lot of cub members and small business owners to make yourself resonant enough. Is that like stand out? Yeah. To so to, to win mental availability. So physical availability is, oh, it's there and I can buy it. Mental availability is when somebody says, hey, how many business clubs can you think of? The first one they go is cup. That's mental availability. you won mental How many um, cola brands can you think of? Coca-Cola, Pepsi have got it. There's loads of other ones out there. How many gums can you think of? Uh, Wrigley's... Good space. Good space. Exactly. <laughs> so to win mental availability, you need to speak to your total audience, ninety percent of your total audience, at least six times a month. So what you can do then is go well. Actually, if my audience is only twenty thousand potential people, how can I speak to them at least six ninety percent of them at least six times a month? And what are the channels that I can reasonably afford to do that on? Yeah. So there is there's 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 there is some art and science behind media budgeting which i think is is worth what i
0: mean what i drink. just took from everything you just told me though was that you need to make your company good enough and efficient enough to to make good profit and good money so that you can then invest into marketing and brand building so that it speeds up more growth and you end up in this really beautiful trajectory. Correct. That, I mean, that's that's, and, that's and, really yeah. the sad, tr- that, not sad, but like the brutal truth of
1: it. Yeah. And, and advertising yeah. really interesting. Like we get all the time we go, oh, I tried, uh, I tried um, out of home marketing and, and uh, buses and it didn't work for me. And I was like, well, you know, it might not be the channel. Like if buses work for thousands and thousands of brands and have for decades. Maybe it's not the buses and the outdoor advertising or the TV doesn't work for you. Maybe it's that your product isn't performing. Maybe the placement is really rubbish. Maybe your pricing is wrong. Like there's other things that you can look at. Maybe your creative was so vanilla that nobody noticed it. That's It's not necessarily the media channel and people tend to Blame that. Um, yeah. Because that's uh, what costs the money. It's like, oh, but that bus cost me uh, seven grand God's this week. It's yeah. so much money for yeah. this bus and I don't yeah. have seven grand's worth of sales. It's like, it could be a myriad of things behind it. <clears throat> it's unlikely to be the media channel. It really is. but yeah. and, and, usually it's, and actually, usually it's the creative. Normally it's that what you've put on there is so benign that everyone's ignored it. You just and didn't it, take enough of a risk. You weren't risque enough. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You well, didn't do anything to pique my interest. Yes. Well,
0: we do have to wrap up. But why don't we finish with – so where can people get Good Space from? Online or the uh, website? Or?
1: Yeah, come, come and check out the website, goodspacegum.com. Uh, you'll find us at an increasing amount of – actually all the stockists are on the website. So there's hundreds and hundreds of places that are stocking across Australia. And uh, if you want to buy a pack, you can buy it online or you can buy it from Amazon um, or go into one of our retailers. And, and
0: you can't them, have like, too much – so right? I have like – a whole pack now, do I get
1: sick or am I all good? Like any medicine. Okay. (laughs) Like I ask. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like any medicine. No, look, the the worst that would happen is you you would be an extremely chilled out version of yourself. Um, So I shouldn't have this before the gym, for example. Don't have an anxiety aid before the gym. Like that nervous tension is good for you. You're going to lift heavy, mate. Okay, good. So Um, my point is that means it works. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you can have too much of something, it's got an effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so, was, but but the, the recommended daily is like not more than four pieces in a day. Okay. Um Yeah. So, and to be honest, if you're finding yourself getting extremely anxious more than four times in a day, that might be when you need to go and see a doctor, a, see, a, see a health professional. Yeah. And well, yeah. it was good to catch up and, and thanks for coming Always on. It was a pleasure, mate. It is.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I'm so happy to hear, you know, the. Cub and the community's involvement in good space. And I think it's a fantastic idea. I can't even believe someone. You know when you say, can't believe no one's done that before? That's how I felt about Cub and that's how I feel about BOA now. They're always the best things. It's like they should – someone should have done that. Yeah, why has no one done this? Yeah, Yeah. it's so weird.
1: And that's exactly what I thought with that. And now I'm a couple of years in – and, uh, you know, have invested a reasonable amount of money to get it to this point, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why. It's because it's quite difficult. Yeah. But <laughs> well, that's always
0: the <laughs> yeah, case. Though. Yeah. It's exactly. always the case. Um, and if you want to get in contact with Mikey, go to cub.club forward slash podcast, and you can find him there. And if you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. Thank you again, my good friend.
1: Thank you, mate. Pleasure.
0: Ho- hope you had a good. Uh, hope you, why do I keep screwing up the end of episodes? You're I keep doing. So this like,
1: chilled, hope
0: you enjoyed the show. <laughs> I'm too chilled. See ya. <laughs>